You're listening to Unpaused, a podcast for women who want to stage a career comeback or mastermind a new one after an extended break from work. I'm your host, Judy Stewart, and if you want to reclaim your career but don't know how, then this is the podcast for you. Let's meet our guest for today. For a girl whose forebears left Cuba as exiles, Danielle Alvarez has clearly inherited the pluck of both her entrepreneurial Spanish grandparents and her industrious first-generation American mother and father. Having fled all but empty-handed Fidel Castro's dangerous communist regime, her family stayed close, and Danielle was raised in a nurturing Cuban migrant community in Miami, Florida, which soaked up the democratic freedoms on which the American dream is said to have been built. Eventually, once the cooking bug had taken hold, the West Coast food culture of the United States beckoned. At its epicenter sat Alice Waters and her pioneering restaurant Chez Panisse, and over she went. Before long, Danielle was at work in that famous kitchen, honing her skills with the best of them and becoming part of a talented diaspora identifiable forever for having worked under Waters' tutelage. Her next move saw her in Australia, opening Fred's in Sydney's Oxford Street, with Merivale chief Justin Hems firmly behind her. The accolades followed. Then in May this year, she called a day on her eight-year reign in that heavenly kitchen, much to the dismay of her adoring patrons who had flocked to the long open kitchen with a fiery hearth that had made Fred's the coziest and the most stylish dining room in town. She's in the midst of a pause right now while she works out her next steps, but I can't say she's at leisure. There's a book in the works and there seem to be any number of projects on the boil. Danielle, welcome to Unpaused. It's lovely to have you here at last. Oh, thanks Judy, it's such a pleasure. If I take you back to the early days at Fred's, given that you were from the US and relatively unknown, what helped you most to get on your way at first before all those awards and hats and stars started to accumulate? It was such a big move for me coming from, you know, I was in California when I was sort of in between. I was, do I go back to Miami? Do I take a big move somewhere else? And the opportunity to come out here came up you know, almost out of nowhere, but through a mutual friend. And I really decided I would just take that big risk. And for some reason, I was in that very confident part of my life where I thought, oh, I'm just going to go. I'll do it. I'm moving to Australia, going to open this restaurant. And I didn't really know what I was doing in a lot of ways, but I figured it out. And I think there was a community here that I really was drawn to. I thought the chefs at the time, were really welcoming to me. I think they were quite interested to see what I would do. A few places were really focused on doing this sort of farm to table type restaurant, but no one was really doing it in a serious way and at a high end level. So I think finding out that those farms were there and that they were able to sell to us was a real key point. And so I did a bit of work at the beginning to build those relationships and to find out how we were going to, you know, build that foundation because those farms are so important to opening a restaurant like that. Without them, you can't operate. It is the heart and soul of the business. So that was the work leading up to it. And then, yeah, in 2016, we opened. And what about the key influences? I mean, I've mentioned Alice Waters, but 
the key influences on your decision to cook and then to become a really good cook? Well, and I'd say it's still evolving. I think that's the thing about style when you talk about like food and cooking. You really spend the early parts of your career when you first go out on your own, kind of mimicking the things that you were doing because that is where you feel comfortable. One of the most inspiring things, seeing that abundance of freshness. Growing up in Miami and Cuban household, it was very much like braised meat and braised starchy potatoes and it was new to me to go somewhere where everything was green and fresh and bright and beautiful. And then I think moving to Australia and having different Asian influences, having different ingredients to play with. It's all about really listening. I think as a chef who works with nature, works with produce that's always changing, you have to be really quiet in a lot of ways and just be quite aware does this work? Maybe this thing I used to do with this item in California, it's different here, so I have to change. It's really evolutionary. And I find that really exciting. So the chef that I am now is definitely not the chef I was eight years ago. And in five years, I'll be a different kind of chef, hopefully just always refining, refining and becoming more and more the chef I want to be. You mentioned your Cuban family and obviously the food was very different, but just, I know there's a very interesting story about this family. Just tell me a little bit about them. So my great grandfather came over from Spain completely by himself. You know, this would have been in like the 1930s and Cuba was incredibly open at that time. So you could just leave wherever you were from and come to Cuba and start anew. And so he came and over like sheer will, I think created this like incredible sugarcane growing empire and became one of the five main sugar producing families of Cuba. He had five daughters with his wife Rosa, my great-grandmother, and all five of the daughters each had their own house on that property. And my grandmother was the youngest of the five girls, and she was the one who loved to cook the most. I grew up hearing stories about this very idyllic and bucolic setting where, you know, they'd have, they'd raise pigs on the farm and and then they'd have these fabulous parties where they'd cook the whole pig and cook vegetables that were grown on the farm and really things that obviously now I, I wish that I had, but that was, that was their life. They were blessed to have all of that growing up. So my mom grew up in that environment on a farm and it wasn't until that Fidel Castro came in that that all really started to change. And My grandmother actually sent my mom with her brother to Miami with an aunt because she wanted to stay behind because my great-grandfather refused to leave. And I think it was several years before they were reconnected in Miami after my great-grandfather passed away on the property because he just didn't want to leave what he had built, which I just think is such a tragic story. And it changed their lives forever in so many different ways. But my mom coming over by herself, I think really changed the relationship that she had with her mother and and father, obviously. And then when they all finally reconnected in Miami, it was kind of like they still thought that they were going to go back. There wasn't this like spirit of, okay, we're here now. Let's change tact. Let's build a life here. They were still planning to go back. Mm. But you grew up very much in a Cuban culture. Oh, very much so. I actually don't think we switched over into American culture until I was a you know, late teenager or something. It was Cuban food every single night. We all sat together at the table, which was really beautiful. Now I'm so grateful that I had a childhood like that. But mom was a great cook. 
my grandmothers were both beautiful cooks as well, which is, I think, where that bug really started in me. I didn't ever plan on cooking professionally. It was not anything that anyone in my family had ever done. And I think it really took everyone by surprise when I said that I, that's what I wanted to do. So I studied art history university and worked in that space for a bit, but I hadn't really considered cooking as a profession until I was in my 20s, which for cooking is actually kind of late. And it must be a big leap to go from liking cooking and doing a lot of cooking to actually becoming a professional cook. Yes, it is. And I would say probably for like 95% of people, it doesn't translate from liking to cook to being a professional cook. Interestingly for me, I actually loved it. I realized that the restaurant space was, it's just so dynamic and exciting and no two days are the same. I always worked in places where the menu changed daily. So you're constantly flexing those muscles around creativity, tasting, checking, creation. My first restaurant job was at the French Laundry in Napa, California, which is three Michelin star, like, incredible restaurant and I think this would have been in like the kind of mid 2000s and that was really like the heyday of that restaurant at its peak it it was just so fascinating to me it wasn't actually the route that I ended up taking in terms of my cooking but being in a space like that where people are so disciplined so trained all of the wheels are moving in one motion in sync all in the same direction it was really exciting Ultimately, in that kind of perfectionist style of restaurant, there just ends up being so much waste because there's this search for this perfect little thing that's exactly like that, where I realized pretty early on that I was quite intrigued by the organic nature and beauty can be so many different things. And then the next big stop on the journey was Chez Panisse, which probably was the most influential restaurant that I worked at almost five years there. And still to this day, I consider it to be one of the greatest restaurants in the world, not just because of the food it produces, but because of the way it operates. I mean, it's, I don't know many places that could operate this way, but as a, as a chef, it was so exciting. You'd come in, you'd start your shift at whatever time, two o'clock or one thirty, And then you'd gather with the head chef, the other cooks, and we'd sit under this beautiful wisteria tree and we'd talk about what we were gonna cook that day. And the chefs would pick which course they wanted to take. The head chef would say, I'm imagining something like this, but you make it your own. And then you'd just go off and you'd be prepping all afternoon. You'd be creating in your mind, you'd be putting things together. And then dinner service started at 5.30, 6 o'clock. We'd do two seatings. In between the seatings, we would all sit down together and have a meal. Mm. and have a glass of wine and come back and do it again. I mean, it just felt so like European, so different, so like non-American push-push busy restaurant. Like it was actually really a beautiful way to cook. It was revolutionary for her to be championing this way of sourcing ingredients and cooking simply in the 1970s when that restaurant opened. And that restaurant has had its share of ups and downs, but it's approaching 55 years. So obviously it's it's really well loved. And you feel that though, when you walk in there and you work there, you feel like you're a part of a movement. You feel like you're doing something important. And Alice is still very present. And it was always really nice to have her coming into the kitchen and 
she's always pacing, she's always commenting, she's always wants to improve. Even 55 years on, she's still really pushing things forward. And so when you opened Fred's, what parts of that culture did you bring with you? I tried to really bring that spirit of, A, sourcing the best ingredients possible from the local community. I think, you know, as I was saying before, that was such a crucial part of deciding whether or not the restaurant was viable in this area. Secondly, I think, and this one was quite hard for me because in terms of leadership, that was the first real big leadership role that I had, leading a team of 30 people, let's say. I really wanted to approach everyone with a sense of respect and respecting their identities as cooks, creating a nurturing space for them where they wouldn't be afraid to fail because so many kitchens are the opposite of that. And so I kept that mantra in mind and failed along the way. I think there's definitely moments of leading that kitchen where I wasn't the person that I wanted to be. But ultimately, I feel really good about where I left it. And I hear from so many of the chefs that came through Fred's with me that it really changed how they thought about kitchens. It really changed what they thought about women leaders. And they wanted to work with me for that reason. And they became better cooks for it. And so I feel extremely proud of that, probably more than almost anything else. And Danielle, I know that before the restaurant opened, first of all, there was a very long lead up time, as I recall. And then just before it did open, you had a very big personal setback when your brother died of a very rare form of cancer. That must have been a very make or break time for you. I think about it now and I still don't know how how I got through that. But he was diagnosed actually, like, I think three days after I landed in Australia. So it was a really, really tumultuous lead up to the restaurant opening. I was constantly flying back and forth to home. I will say I reflect a lot on how that changed me. And I felt an urgency about things. I think the restaurant was going to open. You know, he passed away in early August and we opened the restaurant in October. And of course, I contemplated whether or not I should go and do it. But I felt ultimately like I wouldn't be honoring him or his spirit of enjoying life if I didn't go for this thing that I was working so hard for. And I put a lot of that grief into opening that restaurant, which is probably why it felt so personal for me and why so many people still say, oh, but you can feel your energy and presence in that place. And I think it's because I put tears and hard work and hours and my life into that place. And I think it also just, it changed me in a way where I think I felt less optimistic about things, or I felt the harshness of reality and life is so real now, where I'd had a really charmed, I think, existence up until then, and tragedy had not really struck us. At that stage, I still had all four of my grandparents. My brother was in his 20s, so it just all felt so backwards, so wrong, and I still probably haven't processed a lot of that, and there's a lot of people that I think share that that grief of you don't really know where it is it's hiding somewhere in you and you just try to keep going and yeah it's still very much there for me I think. So your first book Always Add Lemon such a good title was a big success. What do you think writing a book 
signifies in career terms for you, especially as a cook? I think the first book, especially, and you know, you said this to me once, Judy, is that it becomes your calling card. It becomes what people recognize you for. You know, if someone who doesn't know you wants to know about you and your cooking, if you're a chef, they just look at your book and they have this insight into who you are, the kind of food that you make and what you love. So wherever I go, whatever I do, I think that's going to follow me. And and I'm proud of it. I think books are very much a, a snapshot, especially cookbooks, a snapshot of a time, a snapshot of who you are in that moment. And I would say that that book for me is is just it's a picture of the chef that I've been up until that time. We talk about evolution and how things change. I think up until then, that book is a great representation of so many things I learned in California, things that I created when I was at Fred's, things that I cooked when I was at home in the 20 years leading up to that. So, and there's lots of stories and little insights into who I am in the book. And I, I think it's really nice to be able to have that picture of me so readily available. But how on earth did you get it written when you were trying to run a restaurant? <laughs> there was a lot of just seven-day working weeks in that time. And, you know, I, I'd have a shift starting at the restaurant at noon and I'd be testing and writing recipes from like eight until 11 and, you know, dash out the door to work and come back and you know, have weekends of just cooking and writing. And, you know, I got it done, but it wasn't, it probably wasn't as fun as the process is for me right now. Because you're writing a second book. So how I'm is writing it, a second how book, is it yeah. different now? So different. It's so different. So I'm not working in a full-time capacity. So it's been just wonderful to be able to wake up and, you know, look at my recipe list and write a little bit, read a lot more. I'm making space for that because I think, you know, reading is so important to good writing. And then cooking and testing and pottering around my kitchen, which I absolutely adore. It just feels like the best gig in all of the world. I don't know how I got so lucky. Something I'm interested in is time and motion. You must learn a lot about time and motion in a restaurant. The way things, there's a sequence to things, there's pressure, you've just got to deliver. What do you think you learned from that restaurant experience that you now apply in oh, your daily so life? In a restaurant, everything is so down to the second, to the minute. You know, you can feel 5.30 approaching in the afternoon. You don't even need to look at a watch. But I have this incredible talent now where I set timers for myself because I'm writing recipes, so I need to know exactly when things are. And I tell you, like nine times out of 10, I get up to look at the timer as it's counting down to three, two, one. I mean, it's yeah. just like now inherent. I know exactly what 10 minutes is. I know exactly what five minutes is. I know exactly what two hours is without looking at a watch. It's just that sense of time. And I don't know if that's like a deeply held anxiety now that's always going to be with me that the clock is going tick, tick, tick all the time. I think uh, chefs really learn to feel time in a way that other people don't. What is the great universal truth of cooking that you would want to share with everyone else who cooks? Wow. Big question, Judy. I think in order to be a great cook, you have to learn to taste food and you have to learn to sense little nuances to what things need adjusting. I owe this very much to Chez Panisse in that we would taste the food several times throughout the day. 
you always see cooks and stuff tasting things as they go, but to taste a dish as a whole, to really stop and look at it like a guest might look at it. And even if it's just you and your home cooking, we all make things and then we sit down and we eat them. And when you're sitting down, you think, oh, well, maybe that needed a bit more salt or, oh, that could have cooked a little more, a little less, and that needed a little lemon, a little olive oil, whatever. So you're always running through those little critiques in your mind. But to be able to do that, I think, when you're in the process of making something and then to do it without having to think about it, it's probably the greatest achievement that a great cook can get to when it just becomes second nature that you just, you sort of hands in motion, you're, you're, you're not even thinking about it. You could be having another conversation and you're just making it work. I would say, taste your food. I mean, there's, there's so many other principles though, that start with great ingredients is another one that is really a no brainer, but can feel quite challenging in a convenience, busy, fast paced world. We tend to just grab whatever's there. And how do you stop rushing? Oh, I don't know, Judy. I'm probably not the one to ask that question to. How do you stop rushing in the kitchen? I mean, I think make things that take time, like spend more time in there. Just don't go for the 15 minute meal thing. Of course, it it all just depends on your life and where you at and what you value and what you want to give your time to. But if you want to slow down, the kitchen is a fabulous place to be able to slow down in. It's safe. It should feel comfortable. Make something that needs an overnight proof or an overnight marinade or something. Get up early in the morning and put it in the stove and let it simmer all day. Come back to it at night and have a glass of wine and sit down with someone you love. And I mean, I just think that is the, one of the greatest gifts of life. And it is the antidote to the fast paced world that we live in, where everything is need this now, needed this yesterday, hurry up, which is so stressful. walking out that door at Fred's for the last time and did you ever think it was going to be too scary to leave? I was very sure that it was not going to be easier to stay because I was just so tapped out and I think not having the creativity right at the tip of my tongue was starting to really stress me out because it is a space where all eyes are on you. You've been there but I'll I'll just paint the picture a little bit clearer for people. The kitchen is really smack dab in the center of the restaurant, which, you know, naive me designing that space. I thought, oh, how gorgeous. People will love that. They'll connect with it. And they did. But what I failed to really recognize was that that meant that I was literally on stage for 10 hours a day. And that really taxed me in a way that I I hadn't anticipated. So it was becoming harder and harder to stay because I just didn't have the ideas. I didn't feel I had the freshness to my thoughts of the food. Was I super scared to leave? Yes. The idea had been simmering for a while. And when the time came, it just felt totally right, like something I needed to do. And I still feel scared now. I mean, I'm several months into my pause, my full-time work pause, and feel that need to really hustle to uh, find work for myself. And I'm not doing that alone at the moment, which is, which is great. I'm working with a business manager who's helping me a lot. But it is a terrifying prospect to leave the thing that everyone knows you for and to try and do something on your own when you don't even know what that thing is going to be. Tell me what the process was. What made you think, I can't do this on my own and that someone with professional expertise could help me? Well, I was just getting approached a lot by 
lots of different people. And, you know, like a lot of us, I think women especially, I'm not a great advocate for myself and nor am I a great negotiator for myself. So A, you're having these conversations about will you come and do this thing for us? And then B, the conversation about pay always comes in. I found that I, I'd get a number in my head of what I felt that job, what I needed to do that job. And then I'd get to the, like that conversation and I'd shortchange myself a little bit. And I just, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't think it's, it's definitely not good for me. And it's definitely not good for women going forward because all of these things set precedent. So I knew that I needed some support in that space. To do the negotiation yes. on fees and conditions, basically, instead of yes. you sort of saying, I'll do it for nothing plus 10%. That's right. When I engage Bridget, who's working with me, she was doing this in a, in a more like corporate group capacity. And it's actually new for her to be doing it on an individual client basis. And so we just started as friends, we were going on long walks and talking about these things. And I was lamenting about what I was going through. And she was also just bringing me naturally all of these business project ideas. And one day I stopped and looked at her and I said, Bridget, why don't you just, why don't you just help me with all these things? You're kind of already doing that. Let's make it official. And so she said, yes. And we've been building that relationship ever since. And, you know, truth be told, I think we're still in the early stages, but so far I really see nothing but upside to working with someone like that. In my industry, chefs, at this place that I'm at are really viewed as, as talent, which is interesting, like in an entertainment sort of way. So those negotiations often work the same as they would as entertainers. And so I talk to her, she knows what my values are. She knows what my core principles are, and she knows the things that I do and don't want to do. So whenever these things come at me, I flick them to her. What do you think? We have a conversation. If it's something that I do want to do, then she goes into meetings with me and we talk it through and we talk through finances and what I think that I deserve for that project. And she negotiates it for me. And so far that's been fruitful. And I hope that we can continue to build on that because I realize that I really like to collaborate too. I don't like making decisions in isolation and having a sounding board of someone that knows you is really important. And what about the, on the other side of that, as a cook and a chef, who's now basically free to make a lot more choices, where does the role of collaboration with other professionals come in? Is that something that you're looking at as well? Collaboration with other creatives that perhaps have nothing to do with food, but that is a bit of a meeting of minds and you can create things together. I think we've never been in a more exciting space here where different brands and artists and chefs, but you can all collaborate on a project that a consumer would engage with or that people just want to see or just create content. Like there's so many different possibilities. And I think this is probably the thing that I'm getting most excited about is is more of that brand collaboration, that creative collaboration. And is that what you feel keeps you visible? Or are there other things that you're doing to keep your visibility? I think the books are helpful for visibility, for sure, because there's always a lot of press and promotion and talk around book Mm. releases. Doing events and et cetera, I think is important for visibility. But I also think I have a lot of control over that now. And so so many of us do with our social media pages and what we choose to put out there. With that kind of thing, you get back as much as you put into it. 
So I've been a bit quiet in that space as I've been writing because I only have so much creative output in me. But I would say it's probably multifold. It has to do with brand collaboration, event collaboration, me putting myself out there and the cookbooks. And then when are we going to be able to taste your beautiful cooking again? Well, great friends will be able to taste my cooking pretty often. But I don't know. I don't know when I'll be ready to put myself in the public restaurant space again. But I'm definitely drawn to restaurants. You probably can't keep me away from them for very long. So we'll just have to see what happens. Well, I hope you'll come back on on pause when you take that step and we'll have a little chat about how you got there. Yeah, we'll see what this pause has done for me. But so far it's been, it's exciting and I'm curious to see what happens too. Turns out this is a little workshop on how to pause elegantly at the right time and for good reason. Danielle's is a quietly confident reflection on creative female leadership and how far she was able to take it before she knew it was time to take a break. Her kitchen was one where people were not living in fear of making a mistake. She respected that making Fred's what it was was a collective effort. Yes, led by her, but the product of all the pieces moving in harmony. And she moulded a culture based on her belief of just how good a kitchen and restaurant could be. She knew when the time to leave had arrived, when the freshness of her ideas for Fred's had started to fade and the price of being on the floor for 10 hours a day, six days a week was just too taxing. She overcame her own fear of leaving because she knew in her heart of hearts that the decision to go was right. Having left, Danielle reframed her professional self as talent for hire, in much the same way as the entertainment industry shops its stars. That meant treating the negotiation of new opportunities seriously enough to warrant hiring a business manager. Coming on the heels of Juliet Kinsman's lament that we don't advocate well enough for ourselves when negotiating fees and conditions, here is Danielle interposing someone who can argue resolutely, even aggressively, for her in ways in which she would never feel comfortable herself. Then there are the books, her professional calling card, audience builder and date stamp rolled into one. Danielle is burnishing the reputation she built on the success of her first book with a second while she regroups. With this one project and the time at last to devote to it, she is bringing the expression of her ethos and evolution as a cook in book form right up to the minute, which is clever. And so the publicity for the second when it's published next year will be perfectly timed for launching the next phase of her career. It all fits. Before I finish, I'd like to dwell on her words about the kitchen being a great place to slow down, an antidote, as she puts it, to the fast-paced world we live in, because it's safe, comfortable, and yours. She sees it as one of the greatest gifts of life. Agreed. You've been listening to Unpaused. Until next time, farewell. Farewell.